Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books, Books in Law. I'm Itamal Mann, fellow at Georgetown Law Center, and your host today. It is a great pleasure for me to be talking with Patrick Vail about his new book, The Sovereign Citizen, Denaturalization and the Origins of the American Republic, published by Penn Press this year. Patrick Vail is a visiting professor of law at Yale Law School and a senior research fellow at, at the French National Research Center in the University of Paris I, Panthéon-Sorbonne. Thank you very much for your very kind invitation and kind introduction. Um, it's a very big pleasure for me to have you here. And just as a way of beginning, I wanted to hear what brought you to this book in terms of the tra- trajectory of your research. How did you uh, come to study the history of denaturalization in, in the United States? So I would say it's, it's a random process because three years ago, I had not the idea, I, I didn't think I, was, I would write this book, The Sovereign Citizen, Denaturalization and the Origin of the American Republic. I had started uh, a project on the comparison of denaturalization in France, the U.S., and the UK towards Nazi Germany and Soviet Union. Why did I why did I do that? It's because two years before, while I was writing the full history of French citizenship law uh, since the French Revolution, I discovered that denaturalization has also existed uh, in the United States uh, through a book of somebody which is known by uh, some of the scholars who have studied the history of citizenship in the U.S., John Cable. He's known because he he's the author of an act, the Cable Act, that permitted American women not to lose their citizenship when they married a foreigner, and that was an act of 1922. And he has written a book that is totally unknown about the history of denaturalization in the United States uh, in time of war. In addition to that, I also discovered that a famous author, Giorgio Agamben, an Italian philosopher, has uh, put together the dates of, you know, this denaturalization law uh, in uh, France, 1915, in the UK, 1918, in Portugal, uh, uh, in Italy, 19, in Portugal, 1923, in, in Italy, 1926, and he has argued that the origin of the massive deprivation of citizenship in Nazi Germany and in Soviet Union, were democratic. It has started uh, in France, in the UK. And I wanted to double-check that. I wanted to go in the archives and to check the US, the British, and the French history of deprivation of citizenship and to see how they could have influence the Nazi policy or the fascist policy of Italy uh, or the Soviet policy. And so I went to the British archive and I found uh, something I have already found in the French archive is that the the British uh, decide uh, to create a proceeding for the dual citizen who have decided who are British German and who has fought the British uh, army and government during the time of war. And then I went to the American archives 
And what I found was for me completely ununderstandable. I could not organize my project with putting together the American, the French, and the British. The, the American case was special. And so I decided to, to deal with it, and I discovered it was much more important, much more massive, much more implying uh, the issue of the, uh, the, the whole history of the, of the United States in the 20th century. So I decided to write a, a specific book dedicated to this U.S. history. Okay, uh, precisely on that point, I would like you to read, if you will, a little paragraph from your book, from a letter of a woman that I would like you to talk about a little. The paragraph um, on this issue is on page 191. Uh, will you share it with the listeners? Yes, so it's Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman is the first political denaturalization in the United States. It's very interesting because originally, what, is, what makes the U.S. denaturalization history very particular it is that it, the denaturalization, which is set in the Naturalization Act of 1906, has one main purpose, to fight fraud and illegality in naturalization, which normally in occurs at that time in state courts. The huge majority, 90-95% of the naturalization in the beginning of the 20th century are decided by local state courts. And the federal governments want to make sure that these courts are following the rules set by Congress. So it's why they obtain from Congress the right to institute proceeding of denaturalization in case they discover fraud or illegality. But very soon, a few months after passing the Act, they use a pretext to target a radical they want to expel from the United States. And this radical is a woman, Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman is denaturalized through the denaturalization of her first husband from whom she has divorced 20 years before. Her husband was himself a naturalized Russian Jew and they found that as, may, as probably half of the immigrants of that time he didn't declare his, really, his real date of arrival in the US of his real age and so they denaturalized her former husband and by derivation by consequence of this denaturalization she loses her citizenship in 1909. So immediately, she writes in Mother Earth, a journal in which she was writing often, a pamphlet titled A Woman Without a Country. And much, and, 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 and then, 24 years later, she writes in 1933 a second version of A Woman Without a Country, and it is a paragraph of the second version I will now read. Future historians will wonder at the peculiar phenomenon of American war psychology. While Europe experienced its worst reaction as a result of the war, the United States, in keeping with its spirit of get there first, reached its greatest reactionary zenith before entering the war. Without warning, as it were, it forswore all its revolutionary tradition and customs openly and without shame and introduced the worst practices of the old world. So this quotation seems to suggest a continuum between the European policies that you saw in the, arch in the archives regarding France and Britain and regarding Agamben's thesis and the American policies. That is to say that Goldman did think that there is a relationship uh, but you disagree with this in some way. Am, am I misunderstanding you? Or? Yes, I think she doesn't have the chronology right. Because, first of all, 
the, U the UK and France was not, were not and still are not a federal country. So they didn't have this issue of conflict between state and between constituting state and the federal government. Secondly, the French and the UK didn't react uh, against anarchism or against the rise of socialism through denationalization before the First World War. So it was an American reaction that could not be set on the model of Europe. And I completely, uh, you know, you know, the first deprivation of citizenship in modern times in Europe is an unknown story. Because it's 1848 in the Republican France after the abolition of monarchy. There is the second abolition of slavery and in the decree of abolition of slavery there is a provision that says slavery is a crime against humanity that has to be punished by a specific penalty and what is the penalty? Deprivation of citizenship. You don't have any link between that you know, that uh, provision that has been forgotten and even is not very known by anybody even in France uh, and what happened in the US. I think the US created uh, from uh, from their own story the fact that it's a country that constitutes itself through immigration through massive immigration, especially in 1906-1907, it's the highest numbers. You have more immigrants in 1907 than you have every year now in the U.S. Today. Legal immigrants. And so, it's a reaction. The world, you know, the uh, reaction of the assassination of President McKinsey, uh, the rise of uh, a of massive immigration, so it's a very specific American response. But it was used for political ends at this period. Uh, with uh... Yes, but where she's wrong, and I, show, I, I think I demonstrated it in my book, is that she was the target in 1907, 1908. But in 1912, I tell a an incredible story in the book where the Attorney General of President Taft, a George man, Wickersham. George Wickersham. That is an amazing story. I, I, that is really Who has heard that a local federal attorney has instituted a proceeding of denaturalization against a socialist in the state of Washington and the federal court has decided this denaturalization or orders his federal attorney to go back to court and to bringing back to his American citizenship. And not only that, Congress unanimously start a procedure of, proceeding of impeachment against the federal judge that has denaturalized his socialists. That's 1912. So when she speaks about the climate before the First World War, I completely disagree. And the testimony of, uh, 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 of a civil servant of the Immigration Naturalization Service confirm what I say, that the, the climate changed completely because of the First World War. Yeah, George Wickersham is one of the most uh, fascinating characters in your book that is filled with fascinating people. And I would like to hear more about him a little bit in terms of his role in this story of uh, the history, the whole narrative that you create in the book of the history of denaturalization. Who, who was he and what exactly is his role well, he was a lawyer. He was a Republican uh, from uh, the East Coast. He was a uh, Attorney General of uh, President Taft. He arrived in office at the beginning of 1909. And the first, his first act is to sign an instruction as to limit, hugely limit, the possibility, the institution of proceeding of uh, de de denaturalization. 
what, what was uh, what was uh, the, the problem? The law of 1906 has ordered has ordered the executive the federal executive government to institute denaturalization proceedings any time they found a case of illegality of or uh, fraud in naturalization. The problem was that after 1906, they discovered that a huge number of naturalized immigrants has not been naturalized following the law. How did it come? For example, a new immigrant go to court with two witnesses. So the judge check the witnesses' naturalization documents. And they discover that the witnesses has lied, have lied about the date of arrival, place of birth, uh, age, etc. Oh, okay, so you have not been le- uh, legally naturalized. Let's institute proceeding of the naturalization. So numbers were rising, rising, rising. And suddenly they said, we are going to perturbate the whole society. In many states, probably half or two-thirds of the naturalized American were not legally naturalized at that time. So he sent an instruction to all U.S. attorneys that to not to institute proceeding to cancel certificate of naturalization unless some substantial results are to be achieved thereby in the way of the betterment of the citizenship of the country. What did he mean? He mean either there is a court which is corrupted and we have to fight that. So let's go after the people who have been fraudulently naturalized. Let's denaturalize them. Let's publicize against the court, and let's reinstall these people in their citizenship because they are not responsible of what happened. Or, so that's the first, let's clean the institution. First target, first purpose. The second issue is, let's go after the American naturalized who are not good Americans. They are criminals, or they, are, they have a bad moral character, or they are radicals, in that case, it's possible to continue to implement denaturalization proceedings. But Vickersham had a very uh, narrow uh, approach of what is a radical who should be uh, denaturalized. And he didn't think, uh, he didn't think uh, uh, a socialist, uh, uh, even if he was not a socialist, should be denaturalized. The other thing he did and that was a faci- that is a fascinating story. Because after the act of 1906, nine months later, there is a new act, Expatriation Act, that includes a provision that overlaps with the denaturalization provision of 1906. It's about the naturalized American who go to live abroad. The Act of 1906 says, if you go to live to your country, to your country of origin in the five years following your naturalization, you lose your American citizenship. And the Act of 1907 says, if you go to live any time after your naturalization in your country of origin, or in, for some years in any, any foreign countries you lose your American citizenship and Vickersham didn't want to implement this provision so he said that he didn't read the act the way the State Department read it he said I read it as a suspension of the consular protection so for me these people who live abroad if they come back to the U.S., they are still American. And the State Department retaliated by saying, okay, you think they are American, we think they are not, so we will not give them passport to come back to the U.S. And the conflict was partially resolved 
by a compromise in 1946, a long time after Wickersham had left office, and he, it will be the victory of the State Department in 1940, in the Nationality Act of 1940, the provision against the American living abroad, and many native-born Americans are, as to permit their denationalization, has been hugely expanded at the request of the State Department. Okay, But if you want to, to tell me an additional thing about Vickershap, he became the lawyer of a Japanese-American who was denaturalized because uh, Asian could not be naturalized. And he also, in a report, he was asked about prohibition of alcohol. He expanded by, him, by his own decision the, the, his mission and dealt with the fact that immigrants didn't have any way of appealing Uh, in front of expulsion uh, decision, and he is, the, he is at the origin of the first, I would say, administrative proceeding that permits today immigrants to get at least some hearings before being deported, etc. So he's a, he's a hero, I would say, a known of the cause of foreign-born American and immigrants. Yes, yes, definitely, and um, he. he Kind of, uh, you, you mention him again in another fascinating chapter in which you talk about another person who I think is one of your heroes in, in the book, uh, Wendell Wilkie, in the context of the Schneiderman decision. And um, I, I thought that maybe you you can talk a little bit about, a little bit about Wilkie and in the context of Wickersham, uh, in terms of uh, the question if they actually represent the same kind of Uh, Republican. Republican. Yes, it's idea. a Republican a tradition that seems to have been lost today uh, because it's a very liberal tradition. And Wendell Wilkie, who was a candidate, the, 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 the Republican nominee for the election of 1940 and got, 20, got 45% of the vote of the American people against Franklin Roosevelt, One year later, he get a letter from a lawyer, Carol King. Carol King was one of the first women with a law degree from NYU in 1920 and started uh, to dedicate her, her life of lawyer in defense of uh, foreign-born immigrants, citizen. Uh, black uh, union leaders and uh, to make the story short uh, she met William Schneiderman who was the secretary of the Communist Party of the state of California uh, when she took the defense uh, of Harry Bridge who was a union leader who has been Sent whose case has been to the Supreme Court four times because they tried to denaturalize him to expel him many, many, many times. And she lost in appeal court, and then she decided to appeal to, uh, to uh, the Supreme Court. Why did she lose first in the district? And so Schneiderman's. Uh, uh Schneiderman Nation, was denaturalized. Yeah, denaturalized. Mm -hmm. He was naturalized in the, in the 20s. Uh, no, in the, in the, yes, at the end of the 20s, beginning of the 30s. And he was a communist at that time. And then they, so they denaturalized him uh, for uh, not being, uh, for having lied in his pledge of allegiance to the United States. So that was a jurisprudence that has not been checked by the Supreme Court at that time, but was uh, backed by federal courts since the First World War, that would say that because it was based on a sociological, I would say, reasoning, I quote, uh, they assumed that integration and assimilation progress with the errors. 
So when an immigrant pledges allegiance to the United States at the moment of his or her naturalization, this allegiance should rise through the years. So if 10 years or 20 years after your naturalization, you stand against the United States, it means in the in the in the uh, the mind of the court uh, that had a kind of mental reservation at the moment of your pledge of allegiance, and on that basis they would denaturalize the radical who stand against the government uh, a long time after his or her naturalization. And on that basis, uh, they, uh, they denaturalized Schneiderman. So, uh, Carol, Carol King decided to go to the Supreme Court, but she thought she would lose if she would not call for another lawyer to take the case, because she found herself not very good in court, and she thought also that as a woman, she has no chance at all to win in front of the court of that time. So she wrote to Wendell Wilkie, because he has expressed in one interview the, his his uh, belief in the First Amendment and his and in the freedom of thought and for all Americans. And she says, in the name of this value, would you accept to take the case? Check with a friend about who is this Schneiderman? Is it a good man? And he discovered that he was a good man. He never broke the law. He was just a communist who has the right to be a communist in the mind of of Wilkie, and he decided to take the case. And they won. And they won. In uh, in 43. So a Republican uh, presidential nominee represented... And he wanted to be the next Republican nominee in 44. He died of a heart attack during the primary. Yeah, he died of so a heart attack, and you bring the, the, the beautiful words that Carol King says about him in, in, in his uh, funeral. You want me to read you what... Carol King says about him? Uh, if you, yes, if you, if yes, you... I would love to do that. Okay. So, <laughs> so when he died, hear what she said. Carol King was a radical, I mean, she was on the left liberal side of the politics, of course. Wilkie dead. It is unbelievable. As he gone out of the sun, his handshake was so warm, his laugh so full of fun. He had been so very much alive and loved living. His death was a great personal loss to me, even though it is hard to write of him. But I found in, f- in the few days after the public learn of his death, how personal this loss was not only to me, but to people who had just met him, or seen him, or even to those who only knew there was a Wilkie, a great democratic American, with a love for humanity, and for the principle in which he believed. Wilkie helped unify the country, Republican and Democrat alike, behind the broad vision which made him see contending international forces as one world. One world was the title of the, one of the book of Wilkie. So this is a moment of uh, kind of... Um uh, unification between a radical leftist and a Republican around the idea of uh, citizen American citizenship, I take it. Yes, and freedom of speech. And freedom of speech. Freedom of speech and respect of of the Constitution and of, of, of the... Uh, and it was an incredible battle in the court because it was a 5-3 decision. The Chief Justice stood in the minority, he wrote the dissent opinion, Frankfurter was angry after all his colleagues because of, of this uh, majority uh, reversing a, de- a denaturalization, and they tried to define, I mean, Chief Justice Stone trying in his opinion to define what was the principle of the Constitution 
which Shadowman was not faithful, but there was no way. The majority said, first of all, after his naturalization, he has freedom of speech like any American. So they reversed all the jurisprudence on, on Montana Reservation. And at the moment of his naturalization, there was nothing in the statute that forbid uh, a communist to be naturalized. It, it, it came after the Second World War. Yeah. But I would like here to quote the spirit in which Frankfurter, Felix Frankfurter, who was sitting in the minority of the court on that case, was. Because while Harlan Stone, the chief justice, was writing his dissent opinion, he advised him to include this paragraph. Surely the Congress has the right to exact from aliens to whom the privilege of citizenship are granted attachment to the principle of the Constitution of the United States as much as the USSR has the right to exact and has exacted devotion to its principle from Russian citizens. Chief Justice Stone didn't put this paragraph in his final draft, uh, which was the, the final opinion which was published uh, at the moment of the pronouncement of, of the decision. And, and the rest of the book indeed is a kind of battle or war, as you put it, between uh, the different uh, judges of the Supreme Court. And if you can say first, in a kind of a general way, uh, who are the judges at this time, and what are the positions that they represent in this war, in the uh, decisions that you go back to in your book? So you mean the decision concerning, because until now we have spoken about naturalized citizens. Right. And this book has a methodology, which is a micro-legal history book. It takes one provision of the citizenship law of the United States, and it studies it from its creation and its insertion of the American law, 1906, until the Supreme Court reduced the scope reduce usually the scope of the impact of the provision, and that occurs only in 1964 and, and 1968, after the court had to deal not with but with cases of natural-born American. I just mentioned that the Act of 1940 has expanded hugely the number of cases and number of situations where American-born citizens would be deprived of their citizenship for, for example, voting in foreign election, escaping the draft, uh, uh, joining a foreign army, uh, or even going to live in the country of citizenship of their naturalized parents. That was cases where uh, American-born would be deprived of their citizenship. And so, what is interesting is that these cases, this the implementation of this provision, started in 1945. And at that time, so it's after the Second World War. It's after everybody assesses the impact of the Nazi policy in all fields. The U.S. implements denationalization of their own citizens, 5,000 per year. So how did that happen? Why did that happen? They, they applied the law. Why they did that law, the law appear? What? Why did that law appear at this time? It was passed in 1940. It was it could not be applied during the war, very with a lot of difficulties because it was targeting American abroad. People voting in foreign election normally they vote at that time they vote when they are abroad. At that time, uh, people escaping the draft they are abroad, so it was absolutely almost impossible. So they suspend the implementation of the law during the war, and they resume it when the the war finished. And so, by thousands, American-born are deprived of a citizenship. And here I would say that when the first case arrived in the court, 
and get certiorari, uh, Chief Justice Warren, and you can find that testimony in the papers of uh, of Justice Douglas, who take note of every debating the conference of the justices, every position, uh, says it's unconstitutional, together with Justice Black. But that for the first case, 1955, they just agree unanimously to impose, to reverse the denationalization on the basis that the, the genie that is imposed for denaturalization case in Schneiderman has not been respected in that case. But three years later, three cases arrived together in the courts. There is one case of a, a Japanese-American who found himself in Japan uh, in 1942-43, joined the Japanese army and is deprived for that reason from his citizenship. There is a second case, Trop. Trop is in Casablanca, French Morocco. Is an American army compound. He's depressed. He leaves the compound for 24 hours. He's on his way back. He's arrested by his uh, comrades. And he's sent to the military court and uh, condemned for treason or desertion, sorry, for desertion and loses his citizenship despite. Is only American, and so he's made set status. And the third case is a case of a, a guy called Perez, and Perez is a Mexican-American born in El Paso, Texas. He's, as a kid, is moving to Mexico with his parents, and in the age of 20, he is... Uh, uh, back to the U.S., declaring himself as a citizen, and has to admit he has voted in the, in the election of Mexico, uh, and he has joined the Mexican army, and for that reason, he's also deprived of his citizenship. And at that moment, in, that, in these cases, 57, 58, there is a huge battle between, on one side, um, Frankfurter, who is uh, leading the majority of the courts, who says that there is a power of Congress for... To, 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 for uh, issue of foreign affairs or military uh, necessity to denationalize an American. And on the other side of the court, you have uh, Black and Warren and Douglas who consider that Congress has not the power to denationalize any American, but they don't know when they are looking for a reasoning that would permit the Supreme Court to declare all this constitution. And what is the reasoning that they actually arrive at? So they arrive to a reasoning after different steps. In fact, in the case of Trop, there is a, the Second Circuit has a Confirm the denationalization of Trump, but the chief judge of the, of the circuit has dissented and used for his dissent an article published by the Yale Law Journal, by a student, it's a student note, who argue that to create a stateless is a cruel and a new role punishment. And for, for its own reasoning, quote Anna Arendt, who has just published uh, a famous book, The Origin of Totalitarianism, in which she has a ten very famous pages on citizenship and loss of citizenship, and in which she defines I mean, for many, I'm not, an Arendt definition is more complex, but for people have heard that she has defined citizenship 
as a writer of rights. And this is uh, something that uh, this uh, student note by Stephen Pollock picks up and, and somehow... Yes. And, yes. And, 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 it, and, and it goes, and the chief just says, this note is great, and I, I rely on... And then the, the clerk of Warren, John Newman, the yellow school of this author... Uh, of course, I've read the note and use it for his work. So this uh, on is how, the opinion of Trump. So this Trump. is how Hannah Arendt actually reaches the jurisprudence of the United States Supreme Court. That's fascinating. Yes, That's fascinating. yes, and save and contribute to saving the the citizenship status of Mr. Trump. But her reasoning doesn't save the status of Mr. Perez because Mr. Trump uh, lost any. I mean, he's, if he lost, if he loses his American citizenship, has no right to have right anywhere. He's, he's stateless. As Mr. Perez, who was a Mexican American, the reasoning of citizenship as a right to have right could not protect him. From denationalization, because he still ha he was still having right to have rights in Mexico, and so the Anna Arendt approach of citizenship was interesting. It contributed to have Warren recover a majority in the case of Trump, but it was not a basis of protection of all America, and it is where intervenes uh, a new concept or a concept that has been revived or re re resumed in, uh, and the, the concept of the sovereignty of the citizen. Which is the basic uh, concept of uh, the book, I take it. Which, 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 from which I take the title of the book because I, th I thought when I discover, I mean, I discovered an extraordinary document five Uh, pages, handwritten notes from Chief Justice Warren about these cases, and he says in this with 17 different points, he says whether the concept was of compact federalism, sovereignty of the individual, or some other, citizenship is the basic an inalienable right of the individual. Yeah. And you actually met with uh, Stephen Pollock, the author of the, yes. the, the, yes. the student note. How was that? How did he feel to be contacted about a student note so many years later? So, first of all, he's, he's now... Uh, he's not, he has already been interviewed and... It is known that he's at the origin of this note, together with the with the the editor of the Yale Law Journal of that time, Norbert Schley, who would be the clerk of Justice Harlan the year of the decision. So Schley plays a role too uh, in having this note had get an impact. I think, of course, he's very proud of that. Uh, and, and, and he recognized also the role of his professor, Marius McDougall, who has initiated, I mean, the, I think the, the paper, the article, he has said, right on that. Marius Ma McDougall. Yes, exactly. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and what is more, I think, more important, it is that the idea, I mean, it's a, It's Warren's notes, but it seems that these Warren's notes were taken during a conversation with one of the Supreme Court justices, and the one with whom he had conversation on these cases was Justice Black. And so the idea of the sovereignty of the citizen probably come from Black. Okay, and and the last case uh, in the in the book is a case called uh, Afroim, um, yeah, which we actually didn't talk about yet, and I'm wondering if we can just uh, 
somehow conclude uh, the narrative that the book presents through a short uh, kind of... Uh, uh, so Afroim was a case of an Israeli-American who has voted like Perez, yes, who has voted in the Mexican election, Afroim has voted in the Israeli Knesset election. And so he was the father of his citizenship following the jurisprudence of Paris. And it, it, it is at that moment that the uh, position of Bremen, who has always who has, who has voted against Black, Douglas, and Warren in Paris, and has immediately or almost immediately regretted it and wrote and written that he has regretted it. Now they had Brennan with them. And uh, and they had a, the and they get the majority of one vote to reverse Perez and to affirm the absolute protection of the American uh, citizen under an interpretation uh, Lit- literal interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. And let me, so the, what is very moving it is that the case is given by Chief Justice Warren to Black, who probably, as I just told you, was at the origin of the concept of the sovereignty of the citizen. And he delivered this strong opinion. And let me to explain. So what is interesting is that Black, first of all, he reads the 14th Amendment the way I will now quote. Section first of the 14th Amendment that confers citizenship and narrow person born here with citizenship also provide that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abide the privilege or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property the due process of law. The first of these two clauses plainly makes privileges and immunities of United States citizenship free from abridgment by a state. The amendment then goes on to recognize a current state to deprive all persons, including citizens, of life, liberty, or property if they are afforded due process of law. But even if afforded due process of law, the state is granted no power under the 14th Amendment to deprive any person of the citizenship granted by the 14th Amendment. And that what what is, is, that's what, what uh, the sovereignty of the citizen means, I take it. That is the, well, that is not exactly, because you could say that's a reading of the 14th Amendment which is, gives, provides an absolute right. But what is stronger than that... It is that Black relied the 14th Amendment. He says the 14th Amendment crystallized something which is at the origin of the country. This country, United States, was created, the state, in this country, the state was created by its citizens. So, a group of people, which are the government, cannot deprive of their citizenship because they are the delegate in some way of the citizen which are, which are, uh, who are the origin of the power they get. So, for him, it's not only a literal reading of the 14th Amendment that, that provides this absolute right, a protective right, it's the fact that it's the 14th Amendment illustrates or crystallized or implement something that is implicit uh, in the origin of the United States. Fascinating. Great, wonderful. I think that that is really um, very, very interesting, and um, it's kind of a theory of social contract that is very fundamental and has very uh, deep implications potentially. I'm wondering, what are you doing with this now? How, how have you kind of continued the work since the publication of the book? And what are the other issues that the, the idea of the sovereign citizen can 
address in your scholarship? So, uh, so thanks a lot for this question. I mean, I am now working. First of all, I will do the second volume of the comparison. That's something. What is, what is the second volume? Which will compare what, has, what was my original project, comparing the UK, the US, the French, toward the Nazi, etc. Comparing, and, and you know there is an issue, I mean the denationalization, denaturalization has been re revived after September 11 in many countries. And so you have a, what does it, what, what do you do with that? So that's still something I'm working on. Is that but, something that you feel that can happen in this country with a reversal of the jurisprudence in the Supreme Court? I don't think so. I think when you look at the jurisprudence that has come after Afroim, and even in the 90s, you find a convergence between the liberal side of the court and some conservative members of the court who found themselves very eager to defend the citizen against intrusion of the state. And so, I must say that in this field of this absolute protection of citizenship, I think the court is quite unanimous or very strongly majoritarian, its majority in, in the defense of the, of the jurisprudence. Uh, I am working on making, on trying to understand why the concept of sovereign citizenship has not received the attention that I think it should have received and still should receive in theory. Because if you look at the reception of Afroim and of the descent of, of uh, Chief Justice Warren in Perez, Either it was not noticed that he has abused the concept of sovereignty of the citizen, either it was contempted by the, the only one scholar that has noticed it, Alexander Bigot. And so I am now writing about can a citizen be sovereign? And my answer, as you can presume, is yes. Okay, and I would show it. I, I will be looking forward to those uh, pieces, and I think we took uh, enough of your time right now uh, for this evening. I uh, really want to thank you again for. I, I want to thank you, you too, again. again. <laughs> okay, great. It was wonderful having you. Thank you so much. Thank you.